There are very few stories about women as warriors, and the difference here is that Florence did not use a gun. She never fired a gun in her life. She used a pen. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. On this episode, we'll hear the story of a heroine of World War II, a story of bravery, intelligence, and sheer daring do. The story is that of the indomitable Florence Finch, and the author of her story is Robert Morazic. Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here, Emily. I did read your book, and all I can say is, what a life and what a story. How did you learn about Florence Finch? Yeah, I first learned of the story uh, when I happened to be in New York traveling. I was working on a film project, and one of our creative producers uh, was, is a guy named uh, Fred Roos. Fred produced all of Francis Ford Coppola's films, including Apocalypse Now. And when I met him um, for a drink that afternoon, he showed me the New York Times and he said, did you read this obituary? And I looked at it and I never would have read it, frankly, because I was traveling, but it was the obituary for Florence Finch. And it was, you know, it was about as long as Winston Churchill's obituary <laughs> and a remarkable story. And Fred said, look, you know, I spent two years in the Philippines uh, making Apocalypse Now, and this story of this woman would make a great film. So why don't you go try to get the rights to it? And uh, after the book, we'll try to make a film out of it. I did get the rights to the story, and but that's how I learned about it. And uh, Fred now has the the film rights. Well, now this is a biography of Florence Finch, and I was hoping you could start us off by telling me a little bit about her early life, where she was born and her childhood. Sure. Florence's father was an American soldier during the Spanish-American War. He went to the Philippines when he was 18 years old as a medic in a war that was filled with atrocities and and death. And uh, when the war ended, he decided to stay in the Philippines because he had fallen in love with the country. Uh, But the war had coarsened him a bit. And when he met a young woman who was already married with a daughter named Maria Hermoso, he invited her to join him in life as his common law wife, which she agreed to do. And Florence was there fourth child together. Um, And she grew up uh, in that family, but by the time she was six years old, uh, her stepsister, Flaviana, who was the daughter of Maria's when her father met Maria, had, had grown to 17 and a lovelier and younger version of her mother. And at that point, um, her father, Charles Ebersole, decided that he would 
marry uh, his stepdaughter, Flaviana, which set in motion a terrible cataclysm in which Maria's mother, uh, in the local jargon, went loco and ended up abusing the children. So Florence uh. was sent away to school when she was seven years old to a school for mestizos, meaning mestiza meaning half breed in a sense. Her father was an American, her mother was Filipino, and they were treated very badly by the expatriate American and British communities. So she went to school at seven to a boarding school. She never went back to the plantation where she was born. And for the next 10 years, she was on her own, basically, which led to her developing a great deal of self-reliance and dealing with bigotry and becoming an independent young woman. But her early life was, was tainted by melancholy and a lot of pain. She was in Manila when there began to be rumblings of war. Where was she working uh, during that time? Yeah, she, went, she, she was an, a superb student. And uh, when she graduated from business college, um, she had several jobs working for major uh, corporate figures in Manila. And as the war clouds began to gather um, after the Chinese invaded, excuse me, after the Japanese invaded China, uh, she went to work for the deputy head of intelligence for the United States Army a lieutenant colonel named Carl Engelhart. And she worked as his administrative assistant, but quickly gained more responsibility uh, because of her dedication and commitment, her intelligence, her resourcefulness. And he came to rely on her a great deal. Uh, he was the major intelligence gatherer uh, for the U.S. Army in the Philippines. And at that time, she also fell in love with a man who worked across the corridor who worked for naval intelligence. And he was a special agent for naval intelligence named Bing Smith. He was called Bing because he had an incredible resemblance to the famous singer Bing Crosby. <laughs> Florence fell in love with him and they were married in August of 1941. Um, the Japanese invaded the Philippines right after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So they were only married a short time, but it was a storybook marriage. They were deeply in love. So can you clarify, because I, I know that this is part of the uh, Second World War that may or may not be as well known as uh, the major battles in the Pacific and the European theater, but why were the Americans in the Philippines and why were the Philippines so important to the Japanese? Yes, the, uh, the Spanish-American War was fought uh, principally in Cuba, uh, which was a Spanish possession at the time. And the United States sided with the rebellion against the Spanish in Cuba, and that led to the Spanish-American War. Uh, the Spanish Navy controlled the Philippines and the Pacific, which was another Spanish possession for several hundred years. 
And when the United States defeated uh, uh, the, Span the Spanish, um, the Philippines became an American possession. Uh, the difference was that the United States planned to give independence to the Philippines, which the Spanish had not intended to do. Uh, because the Japanese wanted to control the entire Pacific, they decided first to attack Pearl Harbor and wipe out the United States Naval Fleet. But there was also a United States Army commitment in the Philippines and the Japanese needed to defeat the US Army in the Philippines in order to take control. It was only 400 miles away from uh, uh, their Taiwan, which had become a Japanese possession. So they decided to invade the Philippines, which they did shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, it moved very quickly. And within a few weeks, they were in Manila and they took possession of Manila. Uh, by then, the United States Army had withdrawn from Manila to the Bataan Peninsula, where they set up uh, a defensive bastion, and also to Corregidor, which was a large island, uh, a fortress island. And, then, and General MacArthur, who commanded the, the forces in the Philippines, hoped that they could hold out until the Americans could uh, come back from the attack on Pearl Harbor. I imagine they had a very long wait. So she's spending the early part of her marriage with her husband away, I assume, and under occupying forces of Japan. Yes, her, her husband, shortly after the Japanese invaded, her husband uh, went to join the rest of the naval forces on Corregidor, along with Colonel Engelhardt, her boss. And as the invasion took place, several battles took place, one of which was a naval battle in which Florence's husband was killed. He was killed saving his crew, for, what she, for which he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest honor for bravery next to the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, Florence, when she learned of his death, felt very lost, but also developed uh, a sense that she wanted to take on the Japanese occupying authority, because after they defeated the American forces at Bataan, they took control of the Philippines. And that led to the infamous Bataan Death March, in which 100,000 American and Filipino soldiers were marched for 60 miles without food or water into prison camps. And that led to Florence deciding she would try to help save as many of the Americans as she could, although at, at that point, early in the war, she wasn't sure how she was going to do it. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. You know, there's a way to stay ahead of stories like today's, no matter where they happen. As the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform, Stratfor brings global events into a perspective you can put to work, helping you and your colleagues navigate through an increasingly complex world. 
Our premium publication, Stratfor Worldview, is filled with easy-to-read, deep-dive analysis on geopolitical topics from war to economies to the environment, politics, and more. Stratfor helps you understand the why behind what's happening now, because what happens next? Well, that's up to you. You can subscribe today at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's all one word, stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Make sure to check it out because there's a special offer for podcast listeners. Now, let's get back to the interview. So talk to me a little bit about her efforts defying the occupying forces and saving the American soldiers. This is where the story truly gets amazing, Emily, because this was a convent-educated young woman, very sheltered, had a newlywed, if you will. Uh, She was not a warrior in any traditional sense. And Lord knows there are thousands of books about men in war, men in war in World War II. I've written a couple of them myself. There are very few stories about women as warriors. And the difference here is that Florence did not use a gun. She never fired a gun in her life. She used a pen. And after her husband was killed, she was able to find a job working for the Philippine Liquid Fuel Union, which dispensed all of the gasoline and diesel fuel and kerosene and alcohol to the Japanese army. And she was able, using her pen and the position she had with the company, to begin uh, falsifying warehouse receipts and vouchers and diverting fuel from the Japanese army to the underground and also to sell it on the black market. And so she created a small network which was able to sell the fuel on the black market and then she used the money that she earned from that uh, to begin sending food and medicine and money to the American prisoners in the largest prison camp of the Japanese called Kabanatuan. And her former boss, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Engelhart, the former deputy head of intelligence for the army there, uh, was one of the many, many thousands of prisoners who were starving to death and who were dying from beriberi and malaria and disease, and they had no medicines. And so Florence found a way to begin smuggling the food and the medicine and the money into the camp, ending up saving eventually hundreds of the prisoners. Um, She continued to do this for two and a half years um, with the Japanese completely unaware at that time of what she was doing, although they knew they were losing ultimately tons of fuel. Unfortunately, in October of 1944, after doing this for two and a half years at great risk to her life, she was arrested after one of the members of her network was caught and tortured and identified Florence as one of the leaders of the resistance. And she was arrested, put in a four by four foot cell, tortured with electronic devices, raped by Japanese guards, all in their interest to try to identify who she was working with in the underground, but she refused to to tell them. 
and shortly before she was to be executed, beheaded, like many of her uh, fellow members of the resistance, she was rescued by the 1st Cavalry Division in January of 1945. At the time, she weighed 75 pounds, and she was on the edge of death anyway by starvation. Wow. And that rescue led to her eventually coming to the United States alone after she recovered her health to visit the family of her father, uh, who had come to the Philippines uh, at the beginning of the Spanish-American War. And that's how she came to the United States. So Florence Finch managed all of this during what is considered by many historians to be the most brutal, actually, theater of war during World War II. She did all of this, and she never, ever, ever told anyone. Why? Yeah, now that, you know, we live in an age, Emily, of course, where we celebrate celebrity, where we can celebrate people who simply aspire to be celebrity people and be on television with reality TV. Florence had a a deep sense of humility. Uh, Just about everybody she served with in the resistance was killed by the Japanese. She amazingly survived, and she came to the United States and visited her family in Buffalo and and decided to stay there. And shortly after she arrived, she met a, a young man who was a veteran of the European War, and they fell in love and got married. And they moved to Ithaca, New York, where he was working for Cornell University. She never told anyone because she never felt the story was something she needed to share. Now, she became one of the most decorated women in the United States uh, during the war in the Pacific. President Truman gave her the Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor a civilian can, can receive for saving all those hundreds of lives of American prisoners. She was given the Asiatic Pacific Ribbon by General Douglas MacArthur, one of the very few women to ever receive it. So even though she had won these awards and she had children, she never told her children, much less anybody else. She just moved forward with her life. She ended up going to work for Cornell University. And it wasn't until 50 years after the war in 1995 when the U.S. Coast Guard decided to name their new Pacific Headquarters building, after Florence Finch, that her children said, Mom, what the hell is this? What (laughs) happened? What's going on? Wow. (laughs) They never knew she was even married before to to Bing, who had won the Distinguished Service Cross. Wow. And so it was at that time that they started having very serious conversations, and Florence shared with her children what she had done during the war. And so it wasn't until she died at the age of 101 in 2016, 70 years after the war, 65 years after uh, everything she had accomplished, um, that this obituary appeared in the New York Times detailing everything she had done to earn those 
those awards. And that's when most people found out about who Florence Finch was and what she had accomplished in life. It's an amazing story. Uh, she was so humble. I wish I had met her. I may have met her because I was a student at Cornell University <laughs> when she was the administrator for the Far East Studies Department. And we may have crossed paths, but uh, unfortunately, we, I don't remember meeting her. But it is an amazing story, and it took place in a time where many people suffered greatly. I can absolutely see it happening, even in black and white, like the Hollywood movies about the war. Yeah, it would make, Emily would make a worthy film. As we know, there are thousands of films made about World War II, virtually all of them about men, men in battle. This would be a film about a woman, a convent-educated young woman, a young war widow who became a one-woman wrecking crew against the Japanese occupying authority. And in the course of her work at great personal sacrifice, you know, she saved hundreds of lives. So yes, it would be a worthy film. You know, it's one thing to write a book. And I like to think I did justice to her life. It's another thing to to get a studio to write a check for 20 or $30 million to make a film. So uh, it may not happen, but she certainly was worthy. It was a privilege to write the story of her life. I've written 11 books. This is the best story I ever came across. Robert Morazic is the author of The Indomitable Florence Finch, the unsold story of a war widow turned resistance fighter and savior of American POWs. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Emily, it was a pleasure to be with you and to have had a chance to talk about a woman who I admire so greatly, Florence Finch. The Pen and Sword podcast is produced by Stratfor, a rain company. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you listen, or consider subscribing to Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Podcast listeners can get a special subscription rate. Go to stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's all one word, stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.